quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Previously on the James Brown Mystery. I was physically sick to my stomach and I wanted to get away from her. I did not kill James Brown. I wanted the best for him. I loved him. I wouldn't hurt a hair on his head. And we learn about a duffel bag containing things from the Godfather of Souls' last days alive. In that bag, a shoe that unexpectedly tests positive for a prescription drug. The them on her shoe, the marijuana and the cocaine, it fits our picture of being highly suspicious that somebody perhaps could have given him any illicit substance that led to his death. Despite being told to throw the duffel bag in the lake, Jackie makes an appointment to bring it to a prosecutor in Atlanta. I have a half tank of gas. I should be okay to get down there, right? Yes. It's February 2020 as Jackie Hollander drives to the district attorney's office in Atlanta. Jackie turns on the car stereo. It's a song by Frank Sinatra called Drinking Again. You know, I don't drink, but I think after this thing is over, I may down a bottle of beer or something just to be able to freaking unwind or something. I don't know. The stakes are very high today. This is Jackie's first chance, maybe her only chance, to sit down face-to-face with law enforcement and tell them what she believes about James Brown's death. Right now, I miss my elephants, my circus, the simplicity of life. Just give me a clown. Jackie and I get out of her car and go into the DA's office. She's brought along the green plastic bin, the one she refused to throw in a lake, the one she's convinced is full of evidence relating to James Brown's death. As Jackie nervously waits for the prosecutor, she rests her elbows on the green bin, bows her head, and closes her eyes. When District Attorney Paul Howard appears, Jackie snaps to attention and thanks him profusely for meeting with her. You, sir, are just wonderful for what you have done for me. Howard is polite and businesslike, and he gets right to the point. So as I understand it, this concerns the death of James Brown. That is correct. And uh, if it was not a natural death, do you know what caused the death? I believe I do, sir. Okay. Now, what do you believe caused the death? Uh, Massive overdose of drugs. An overdose of drugs. And narcotics. Jackie's thoughts are often scattered, and sometimes she goes on long tangents. But today, she's focused and concise. Do you believe from what you put together that it was in voluntary or involuntary in taking of those drugs? I do not believe he took the drugs voluntarily. And you believe then how did the drugs get in his body? As I watch Jackie and the DA go back and forth, I can't tell what the prosecutors in the room make of her story. They seem to listen to Jackie intently, but they say very little in response. 
and please excuse my French when I say this. This is the most crazy batshit story anybody could ever hear. And I know it sounds insane, but it is 100% the truth. Okay. Jackie lays it all out. She tells the prosecutor about her meeting with Candace Hurst at the Mexican restaurant. She also explains what she's pieced together from people like Dr. Marvin Crawford, who suspected there was more to Brown's death than met the eye, and Andre White, who said he had a vial of Brown's blood that would prove the godfather of soul was murdered. So you would think that we certainly need to talk with Mr. White. Yes. And we need to talk to Dr. Crawford. Yes, yes, sir. These questions may sound procedural, but I'm hearing something important. Between Howard's words is an unspoken message. The DA is formulating a plan to look into Jackie's story. Howard sees the green plastic bin of evidence that Jackie has brought in. It's resting on a cart near the conference table. Howard tells another prosecutor to examine it. If you will go with Mrs. Hollander and you can kind of inventory it to see what's in it. Yes, sir. Based upon what she has told us today, we'll meet afterwards and let's see if we can talk to some of the people that she's identified. Yes, sir. I've got a list of six people that we will try to talk to. May, may I ask a question, Mr. Howard? Yes. Um, would it be accurate to say that you are opening an investigation into the death of James Brown, or what's the proper characterization of what you Well, I don't know if I could say it was an investigation. Okay. But what I would say is we're going to see if we can verify some of the things that she said and then make a decision about whether or not to investigate. Howard is a politician, and he's being careful here. But to me, this is a big deal. Thirteen years after James Brown died, a law enforcement official is finally looking into it. Before the meeting is over, the prosecutor asks Jackie about Andre White and the vial of blood. And this opens up an even bigger topic of discussion, something we're going to explore in this episode. Who, if anyone, was behind James Brown's death? Do you know whether or not Mr. White had his blood analyzed, the blood in the tube? It has not. He told me that if he did, they were going to kill him that if he brought that blood in, he signed his death certificate. Do you know who he was referring to at killing This is really strange. It always seems to come to the word they. Everybody that has been affiliated with James Brown ends up using the word they. There it is. This notion of an unseen, unnamed force, always watching and always dangerous. As you know by now, several other people in the world of James Brown have told me similar things. Brown's longtime assistant, Roosevelt Johnson, said James Brown himself talked about it frequently. He would always use the word they. They are watching. They this, they that. That's just the way he felt up until the day he died. So who were they? And did they have anything to do with James Brown's death? From CNN, this is The James Brown Mystery. I'm your host, Thomas Lake. This is Episode 7, They Got Me. James Brown lived in fear for a long, long time. And if these forces he called they and them could be hard to define, there's no doubt he had good reasons to be afraid. 
Brown was terrorized by one man in particular, a man he believed to be affiliated with the U.S. government. Not long before he died, Brown made a plan to leave his tormentor behind. And he was talking about this plan on November 14, 2006. This was the night Brown was inducted into the U.K. Music Hall of Fame. At the awards ceremony in London, James Brown wore dark sunglasses and a shiny jacket that changed from blue to purple in the flash of the stage lights. He was 73 years old. Performing I Got You, he showed he could still glide across the stage. Brown did not look like a man who had only six weeks to live. He looked the best I've ever seen him in the entire time I knew him, which made his death doubly surprising. Nick Ashton Hart worked with Brown from the early to mid-2000s, managing his international tours and other business affairs. At the awards show that night in London, he was sitting on a couch backstage with the Godfather of Soul. Nick remembers Brown saying hello to Patti LaBelle and John Bon Jovi, who were also performing that night. Then he got back to catching up with Nick. They hadn't seen each other in quite a while, and James Brown had some big news to share. You know, he was talking about how he and Mrs. Brown were going to move out of the South and move up to New York because Mrs. Brown, for good reason, was urging him to move out of the South and away from some of the people who worked for him that she thought were not working towards his best interests. Nick Ashton Hart says Brown used a striking phrase to describe the situation he wanted to leave. He would, every now and again, you would hear about Southern servitude. <laughs> Only Mr. Brown would come up with something like that with all the terrible connotations that has to it when it's being said by somebody as a person of color. And yeah, he used that. He'll be looking forward to leaving the Southern servitude behind. Brown's fourth wife, Tommy Ray, told me the same thing. I should note that her legal status as his wife was later called into question during the battle over Brown's estate, and eventually a court ruled their marriage wasn't valid. Anyway, Tommy Ray told me that in the last years of his life, James Brown said he was living in servitude, which literally means bondage or slavery. It's a horrifying claim for anyone to make, and even more shocking from one of the most prominent black American entertainers of the 20th century. What did Brown mean by that? Tommy Ray said Brown was talking about living under the control of David Cannon, his accountant, and Buddy Dallas, his lawyer. Nick Ashton Hart believed this, too, that Cannon and Dallas had too much power over Brown's affairs. You think Brown was trying to escape from David Cannon? And Dallas. It would have to be one of both of them because they were the people most intimately connected to his business affairs of very long standing. And they were Southerners. They were in the South. Buddy Dallas was James Brown's lawyer for more than two decades. He's the one who helped arrange Jackie's recording session with Brown in the 80s. And 30 years later, long after Brown's death, it was Buddy Dallas who told Jackie to throw the James Brown duffel bag into a lake. Buddy has always said he served Brown honorably and selflessly. But here's something else about Buddy that seems relevant to James Brown's claim that he lived in Southern servitude. Jackie says Brown's third wife, Adrian, was convinced that Buddy Dallas was in the Ku Klux Klan. And Brown's fourth wife, Tommy Ray, told me she also believed Buddy was in the Klan. When I asked Buddy about this, he laughed and said, I never knew any Ku Klux Klan. 
anyway. Tommy Ray Brown told me Buddy Dallas and David Cannon treated Brown as if he were less than a man, the same degrading way white men often treated black men in the Jim Crow South. According to Tommy Ray, David Cannon used threats and extortion in his dealings with James Brown. She told me the Godfather of Soul once got so angry with his accountant that he slapped him. And after that, whenever Cannon wanted more leverage over Brown, he reminded Brown that he could still have him sent to jail for the assault. Jeff Allen was Brown's booking agent for 25 years. He often crossed paths with Cannon. Never trusted him. I never liked him. I never believed the word that came out of his mouth. He was just an evil, evil, evil human being. Several people close to James Brown questioned the ways Buddy Dallas and David Cannon treated Brown and handled his business affairs. Buddy Dallas declined to answer my questions for this podcast, but he did write this. Mr. Brown never expressed any discontent with Mr. Cannon to me. To suggest that anyone controlled Mr. Brown is not a legitimate inquiry by anyone knowing him. Anyway, Brown's manager, Frank Kopsidis, had a chilling story to share about David Cannon. David Cannon took James Brown out for a ride around Barnwell, South Carolina. As they were riding around, Mr. Cannon stopped at the side of the road, pointed out a noose in a tree, and said to Mr. Brown, this is what we do to people down here who don't kind of follow what we're saying. Like he was referring to the Southern history of lynchings of black men. Absolutely. And Mr. Brown got shaken up. He told Mr. Bobbitt about it, who then told me. I asked Mr. Brown, and he said, uh, sometimes Mr. Cannon does things he shouldn't do. But he was shaken when he said that. I said, but did he show you a noose in a tree and point at it? And Mr. Brown just wouldn't answer. But you could tell that's what happened. Looking deeper into Cannon's background, I found evidence that he misappropriated James Brown's money. In 1999, Brown made a deal that was supposed to bring him $26 million for future song royalties. But much of that $26 million went straight to David Cannon. After James Brown died and criminal investigators got involved, Cannon would enter a plea in court for the breach of trust and be sentenced to home confinement. So why did James Brown keep Buddy Dallas and David Cannon around? Dallas was his lawyer for 22 years. Cannon was his accountant for 15. Maybe Brown truly valued their help. Dallas worked hard to keep him out of prison. Cannon had proved to be skillful in fixing Brown's tax problems. Or maybe David Cannon kept Brown in check with threats about the U.S. government. Here's Brown's agent, Jeff Allen, again. When he found out Cannon was draining Brown's accounts, Allen recommended letting Cannon go. But James Brown resisted. This is what he said. Again, do my James Brown impersonation, because these are lines that he would say to me. Ms. Allen, stay out of my business. Mr. Cannon's with the government. You don't know what you're talking about. You're better off not knowing. Cannon claimed to have ties to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and he said he knew President George W. Bush. Was it true? I wasn't sure. Cannon declined my interview request in 2018, and he died later that year. But whether or not Cannon's government connections were real, James Brown clearly thought they were. And according to Frank Kopsidis, that helped Cannon keep Brown under control. 
David Cannon used this to tell James Brown he better stay in line or he'll have government agents on his doorstep, including the IRS, in a matter of moments. And there was one instance where Mr. Brown kind of defied what David Cannon said. And literally the next day, two gentlemen were at his doorstep saying they were from the IRS. Who were they, do you think? No idea. But I doubt they were IRS. In my reporting, I learned that in 2006, James Brown finally decided to leave what he called his Southern servitude. He and his wife, Tommy Ray, and their son made plans to get out of South Carolina and start a new life in New York. When I asked Buddy Dallas about this, he told me, that is so much bullshit. But Frank Copsidis says the move was real and imminent. In New York, he could be himself. He could live in a place where there were other artists. He could perform regularly. He loved to go to certain restaurants in New York. And he'd meet people there and hold court. And he was excited about it. He was excited about starting a new chapter in his life. Frank Copsidis says when David Cannon got wind of the move, he was not pleased. Was Cannon concerned about losing control of Brown's estate? He did want to keep it away from David Cannon and Buddy Dallas that he wanted to move to New York, but Mr. Brown could not keep a secret. So at some point, I'm sure he said to David Cannon, I am planning to move to New York with my wife and my son. And David Cannon, I remember receiving a call from him saying, this nonsense has to stop, he's staying here. I said, but Mr. Brown wants to move up there. He said, I don't care what Mr. Brown wants to do. He's staying here. And so, even in late 2006, the Brown family hadn't yet moved to New York. They still lived in South Carolina. And the godfather of Seoul had work to do. His tour schedule called for four shows after Christmas, including a New Year's Eve performance at B.B. King's Blues Club in New York. But as we know, Brown never made it to Manhattan. In late December, he was admitted to a hospital in Atlanta with congestive heart failure. Brown responded well to treatment, and his doctor said he was on the verge of being released. Then he took a sudden and unexpected turn for the worse. It had been only 41 days since he told Nick Ashton Hart he was leaving Southern servitude. James Brown died on Christmas morning. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... 
Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you, and thank you for coming on Christmas Day. A few hours after James Brown died, Frank Kopsidis spoke at a press conference in Atlanta. He had to tell the world the godfather of soul was dead. This morning at 1.45 a.m., Mr. James Brown passed away. He was 73 years young. Brown's personal manager, Charles Bobbitt, spoke at the press conference, too. By all accounts, he was the last man to see James Brown alive. Before he died, he and I were alone. And, uh, excuse me, it's very hard for me to do this. And he told me, I'm going away tonight. He sat down on the bed and he laid back on the foot of the bed and he sighed very, very quietly and very gently three times. Then he closed his eyes and he was dead. Uh, I checked his... Bobbitt stood at the microphone for seven minutes. I called the nurse station and they tried very diligently to revive him, but... Here's what he said at the end. I want to thank you so much for sitting and listening to me and uh, for giving me a chance to stand in front of you and tell you a little bit about James Brown because the whole thing will never be known. The whole thing will never be known. What did Bobbitt mean by that? Over the years, in private conversations with others, Bobbitt revealed more details about James Brown's final moments. He said he'd left the hospital room shortly before Brown died. And it seemed that something bad happened while he was gone. When he came back to the hospital room, Bobbitt saw mysterious white powder under James Brown's nose. Later, he told Frank Copsidis about it. The most detailed version I heard about James Brown's death from Charles Bobbitt was there was white powder under his nose when he returned to the room. There really wasn't anybody around. And he thought it was strange how this all happened. But also the way he said it, it was like he might have known that somebody was up to something. Who that was is a good question. That's the million-dollar question nobody can answer. What was the white powder under Brown's nose? And how did it get there? Who gave it to him? Did he take it voluntarily? Did it cause his death? Was James Brown murdered? As I pondered these questions, the same questions that have been haunting me all the years I've been on this story, I decided to do some research into Charles Bobbitt. He died in 2017, just after I met Jackie Hollander and started on this project, so I never got a chance to ask him the many questions I have. Sure, I'd want to know everything about the night Brown died. But first, I'd ask him about his relationship with Brown's accountant. Remember that disturbing story about David Cannon? The one about Cannon showing James Brown a noose hanging from a tree? Frank Copsidis told me that story came from Charles Bobbitt, who'd heard it from Brown. But when the word got out that David Cannon was accused of stealing millions from Brown, guess who stood up for Cannon? Charles Bobbitt. 
He testified in support of Cannon at his sentencing hearing in 2011. Cannon had entered an Alford plea, maintaining his innocence while admitting there was evidence of wrongdoing. He said he loved James Brown and had Brown's permission for everything he did. And Charles Bobbitt agreed with this. He claimed that David Cannon was innocent, that Cannon didn't take millions of dollars from James Brown. Why would Charles Bobbitt protect Cannon? More importantly, if Bobbitt was that loyal to Cannon, could he really have been loyal to James Brown? Was Bobbitt actually on James Brown's side? These questions sent me back to the beginning of the long, strange history between Charles Bobbitt and James Brown, to the 1960s, when Bobbitt worked for the New York Transit Authority, laying rail in the subway. One night, he saw James Brown play a show at the Apollo Theater in Harlem. As he walked out on the stage, the bells went off in my head, and I told my wife, there he is, there's my future right there. I'm going to get a job with that man, and I'm going to run his organization. As I said, I didn't get to interview Bobbitt before he died. But on the radio show Topically Yours in 2014, Bobbitt told the story about seeing Brown at the Apollo. After that concert, he pursued Brown for months, hoping to get a job. And though it sounds far-fetched, the plan worked. Bobbitt left the Transit Authority and became Brown's personal manager. And I went on his payroll. I mean, you know, regular. He brought me above board and introduced me to the band, 1967. Many people didn't know that because they were wondering, where'd this man come from? Because we never saw him around. We don't know where, what, what he's all about. No, it was because that I was being trained at his house without their knowledge. The more I think about this story, the harder it is to believe. It was 1967. James Brown was rising fast, approaching the peak of his career. And he hired a man who'd been laying rail for the subway to be his new manager? Bobbitt worked his way into Brown's inner circle not long before Brown first suspected the CIA was watching him. Soon, Bobbitt was traveling the world with his new boss. In 1977, they went to Gabon, a small, mineral-rich country in Africa. James Brown was in big trouble with the IRS then. He owed millions in unpaid taxes. His powerful accountant, David Cannon, hadn't yet joined Brown's entourage to help. Brown was so desperate to solve his tax problems, he'd even written a letter to President Gerald Ford asking for help. When that didn't work, Brown asked the president of Gabon for money. President Omar Bongo was a huge fan of James Brown, but he wouldn't hand over the cash. But Bobbitt says at the palace, President Bongo offered him a job. Out of nowhere, Bobbitt would work as Bongo's personal advisor. And Bobbitt accepted this offer. He didn't say why. Was it because Brown's career had hit the skids and President Bongo could pay Bobbitt more than Brown could? Or was there more to the story? Did Bobbitt have ties to the U.S. government? I put in a request to the CIA for any documents they had on Charles Bobbitt. The CIA would neither confirm nor deny having any. So I called my retired CIA source, Admiral Bobby Ray Inman, and asked about Charles Bobbitt's time in Gabon. If he's there, clearly established as a senior advisor to Bongo. It would not be surprising to me if CIA made a run to uh, recruit him. As assistant to President Bongo, Bobbitt traveled frequently between Gabon and the U.S. Eventually, Bobbitt left President Bongo and went to work for Michael Jackson. 
and a few years before James Brown died, Bobbitt returned to Brown as his personal manager, working alongside David Cannon. According to Brown's former agent, it was Cannon who kept the upper hand on Brown by convincing him that he, David Cannon, worked for the U.S. government. Look, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table here and admit I don't know the whole story. When he broke the news about Brown's death at the press conference in 2006, Bobbitt said the whole thing will never be known. And he may be right. I may never know whether or not Charles Bobbitt or David Cannon ever worked for the U.S. government. The CIA declined to answer a list of questions I sent for this podcast. But given the many accounts of Cannon mistreating Brown, and given Bobbitt's testimony in favor of Cannon, does that mean Bobbitt and Cannon were working together and working against James Brown? Back to the question I posed at the beginning of this episode. Who were they? And did they have anything to do with James Brown's death? When Brown spoke fearfully about they and them, was he talking about David Cannon and Charles Bobbitt, men who appeared loyal to Brown but may have had other motives? What's clear to me now is that when Charles Bobbitt was talking about James Brown at the Christmas Day 2006 press conference, he withheld at least part of the truth. Later, he told Frank Copsitis about the white powder under Brown's nose. And not long before Bobbitt died, he gave an even more detailed account of James Brown's final moments. It was a story tinged with regret. And in this story, told in private to someone he trusted, it sounded as if Bobbitt himself believed that James Brown had been murdered. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. After my series on James Brown was published on CNN's website in 2019, I got an email from a woman named Shauna Quinones in Los Angeles. She used to be president of a company called James Brown West, which handled some of Brown's entertainment deals on the West Coast. And she seemed to know a lot of Brown's secrets. So I flew to L.A. and spent a couple of days riding around with Shauna and listening to her stories. It became clear that Shauna knew Charles Bobbitt even better than she knew Brown. When Bobbitt got old and sick and needed someone at his bedside, he called Shauna and offered to pay her to take care of him. He was paralyzed on his left-hand side and bedbound. I had to cook for him. I had to clean him. As Shauna cared for Bobbitt, he reminisced about his life. And once in a while, he talked about the death of James Brown. So I'd ask him, well, what happened? I got a couple of different stories. One part of the story was pretty consistent. Late on Christmas Eve, Bobbitt left Brown's hospital room. He said he wanted to get out of the room. He needed to make phone calls. When Bobbitt returned to the hospital room, it was clear that something had changed. He wasn't feeling good. His chest started feeling like he was burning. 
And then he said, Mr. Bobbitt, Mr. Bobbitt, I can't breathe. It's burning, Mr. Bobbitt. I'm going. They, they got me. They got me? Mm-hmm. Just to make sure I got this right. So Bobbitt's story to you was Brown saying, they got me. They got me. Bobbitt was telling me how he kept saying, I can't breathe. With the implication that someone had done something to him. Huh? Yeah. Bobbitt knew something suspicious had happened. He knew it. They got me. But who were they this time? What was Charles Bobbitt trying to tell Shauna Quinones about the night Brown died? As I thought this through, I was reminded of the story Jackie told me, the one that made her believe Candace Hurst was involved in James Brown's death. Candace, you'll recall, was Brown's former backup singer and lover. Candace and her daughter told me she wasn't at the hospital the night Brown died. She was 150 miles away in Augusta, Georgia. But Shauna Quinones told me Bobbitt said Candace was at the hospital with Brown before he died. Candace was there. She showed up. She was talking with somebody else and I think had a tit-for-tat with somebody about going into the room. Not like a a major argument where it was embarrassing or anything like that, but a little tit-for-tat conversation. So now I was hearing a second-hand story from Shauna that Candace was at the hospital that night and that Candace had a dust-up with someone else who was there. Who was that someone else in the room? Were Charles Bobbitt and Candace Hurst in James Brown's hospital room together that night? Remember, Candace says she wasn't there that night and had nothing to do with Brown's death. I did not kill James Brown. I wanted the best for him. I loved him. I wouldn't hurt a hair on his head. Once again, here's the story Jackie Hollander says Candace told her. Candace later said it was just a vision, but Jackie is convinced it really happened this way. She was in the hospital room with him, with Charles Bobbitt, and that the drugs were on a tray, and the tray, something, Brown freaked or something, and the the tray dropped, and it hit her shoes, and it went all over her clothes, and that he wouldn't die fast enough, and Bobbitt came in, there was a glass of water, and he put these herbs in the water, and they gave it to Brown to help him pass over, because he wouldn't die quick enough. Were the drugs on the tray the same drugs that ended up on the bottom of Candace's shoe? And if Jackie is right about what happened that night, what herbs did Bobbitt put into James Brown's water? Shauna Quinones told me she doubted Bobbitt would have done anything to hurt Brown. And there's a chance Brown took drugs voluntarily in the hospital. But could a combination of drugs and herbs have killed James Brown? If so, who provided them? A few years ago, Brown's son Daryl told me he wanted his father's body exhumed for an autopsy that might finally reveal Brown's cause of death. But this would be even more complicated than it sounds. For one thing, it's not exactly clear where the body is. At one point, it was said to be in a crypt in Brown's daughter Deanna's yard in South Carolina. Another daughter, LaRonda Pettit, was quoted as saying James Brown's body had disappeared. LaRonda died in 2013, but I caught up with Deanna at an outdoor music festival in Augusta and asked her about this. There's been a suggestion that the crypt is empty. Oh, God bless any, whoever said that too. Any chance that's true? God bless whoever said that too. <laughs> uh, I'll take wow, that as a no. Amazing. It's amazing the things that people will come up with. So his body is in the crypt in your yard. 
I said I wasn't going to answer questions I don't want to answer. I'm, okay. I'm sticking to my guns. <laughs> when I talked to Brown's manager, Frank Kopsidis, earlier this year, he still wanted answers. Well, my question was, if indeed somebody went into his room and did something, wouldn't it be on the surveillance cameras? Even if the camera on the floor was out, how about the entryway? How about the elevators? There are too many cameras to capture footage. Where are those cameras? Where's the footage? It was a good question. What did hospital security cameras show from that night? We did ask the hospital administration, and they came back with, well, we're looking into it. But at some point, somewhere along the line, we were told the system went down that night, and there was no footage. A decade after Brown died, I asked a hospital spokesperson if I could see the surveillance footage from Christmas 2006. But I was told the hospital had no such surveillance video to share. Frank Hopsidis still finds Brown's death suspicious. I do believe James Brown was murdered. There are too many things pointing to it. Uh, just there was something in my gut that I picked up, something is wrong here. That's my interpretation, plain and simple. Somebody wanted him dead. On the next episode of The James Brown Mystery, this is the biggest news I've heard in three I and know, a half Thomas. years, right? I, I know, Thomas. <laughs> I've been crying. Here Thomas Wake or a crook, a fraud, a liar, a deceiver, a harasser. Totally empty bag. Nothing in it. It's all empty. They kept everything. The James Brown Mystery is hosted and reported by me, Thomas Lake. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our senior producer is Felicia Patinkin, and our producers are Rachel Cohn, Anne Lagamayo, Lori Galaretta, and Jennifer Lott. Our associate producers are Emmanuel Johnson, Nathan Miller, and Sonia Tun. And our production assistant is Eden Getachew. Our story editor is David Weinberg, and our production manager is Tamika Balance Kolasny. Liz Roberts and Kira Posey lead audience strategy for our show. Jameis Andrus and Nicole Pesseru designed our artwork. Erica Wong is our mix engineer and sound designer. Selena Uthabe is our assistant sound engineer. And Dan DeZula is CNN Audio's senior manager of production operations. Theme and original music composed by David Steinberg and Nathan Miller. Special thanks to Mia Taylor, Courtney Coop, Katie Hinman, Lindsay Abrams, Robert Mathers, Dalila Paul, Andrea White, Anissa Gray, Janita Du, Ram Ramgopal, Lisa Namaro, and John Dianora. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.